Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Today's title is Faith Working Through Love, and before we delve too deeply today, I just want to briefly recap where we have been in previous months. We've been exploring, number one, what God's Word tells us it means to be truly free. What is true freedom? Where is it found? And this whole book is about the one who has set us free in himself, in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. This whole book is about the one who has set us free in himself, in Christ, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. We have explored what it is to be a child of God and how we become a child of God, not by our own, our own works, but through the work of the Spirit, through the work of grace, being children of Abraham. And so Paul is unpacking this truth once again because those who had once espoused this truth lost that truth, lost their way. They were being told a different gospel. And there were people who were threatening to turn them back away from the promises of God. And for us today, too, there is no shortage of temptation for us to stray, to turn back to trying to conjure up salvation of our own works. Many of us try to go back to fleshly-based thinking and living. And so in the coming weeks, too, Paul, to, to fight against this, unpacks this in greater detail, the differences between flesh and the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that especially at the end of this chapter when he gets into the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's the big idea for today. We will see today that the justifying work of God will undoubtedly have a life-altering effect upon you and change the way that you live. It will affect you. The justifying work of God is not void of obedience to the truth. It's going to take some work to understand how that works and why that is. But the justifying work of God is not void of obedience to the truth. This is the crux of the confusion for so many today. This is why many slip back into legalism because they don't quite get that. They get the cart before the horse. The gospel is not void of obedience. We do believe that faith alone saves, right? Faith alone saves you, justifies you. It's all of God. But the faith that saved you is not alone. All right? So we're going to spend the rest of this time unpacking Paul's argument because this is what he's getting at in the rest of the book now. The first half of the book was faith alone justifies you, saves you. I think we get that. Hopefully by now, if you've been with us, you get that truth and espouse that truth. We sing that truth. That's our bedrock of faith. We're not shifting from that. But on the flip side, that faith that saves you, affects you, changes you, makes you alive in Christ to live the way that he called you to live. So to come to saving faith, we understand that, what it means to come to saving faith. 
But the faith that saved you, the faith that you came to by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, is accompanied by a life of works born of love for God and others. So in other words, too, the faith that has saved you makes you alive unto God. It says in Ephesians 2.10, for good works, which you were prepared in advance for, which God prepared for you. So for many, clarity needs to be established when it comes to understanding salvation. What is salvation? For many, they reduce it to that first aspect of justification. So we're going to dig into this passage today and see the aspects of what Paul's talking about. We're going to look at, as we've seen, what it is to be made right is to be justified, to come to saving faith, but then what it is to live in light of that saving faith. And then there's also a future aspect, too, that Paul begins to touch on briefly. So with that said, please turn with me to Galatians 5. We're going to read verses 4 through 10, and we'll begin unpacking this. So you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Let's pray. Father, give us grace today to understand this passage, to understand the gospel, to understand its implications for our lives. Help us, Father, to not go beyond what your word says. Help us to not come short of what it says. Help us as a church to fully grasp applied this truth laid before us today from Paul. I pray that it will be applied carefully to our context, to our church. Would we not twist it or change it because we don't like something? But I pray that you would twist us and shape us to its truth and to its weight. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 4, we see right away that Paul repeats a most important truth again. He's already warned the Galatians many times, and he has warned them that attempting to be justified by the law will make Christ of no value. His atonement, his work on the cross, his cry that it is finished, if they're not living that way, then is it really going to matter? So to expound on that point, if you think you have something to do with saving yourself, then why do you need Jesus? It's really going to unpack that, that point. Why would you need Jesus if you think you can save yourself? Is Jesus' atonement sufficient? Is his atonement complete? If you can work your way to being made right with God, then why did you need Jesus? Why his death? Why his burial? Why his resurrection? So Paul is issuing a wake-up call to those who are being tempted here to forsake the gospel that Paul had preached in that gospel. He is warning those who are seeking to be justified by the law. He further spells out the ramifications of their actions. They were in reality alienated in Christ. The language here is cut off from Christ. The word for alienated literally means that, cut off, made ineffective, that have no value, They're fruitless. 
So the Judaizers thought that adding these works were really making them more spiritual. You ever met anybody like that? You know, there's, there's God's Word, there's God's truth, and then there's the way that they live, and they think they're better than you because they keep adding more things to their life that they're more disciplined than you are because, well, then that makes them more godly. This is what the Judaizers were doing. They were adding to God's law, thinking that they're more spiritual because they did more. They were seeking to mix grace with the works in order to achieve a right standing. So to be justified requires a total work of grace, a total imputation of Christ's righteousness to them, no work of their own. But they were not living that way. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, says, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. What does he mean by that? Whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. So similarly, to want Christ's righteousness and then to add your righteousness to the mix, it really ruins the whole. He's going to talk about that in a few verses later. We read about that where the little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's spoiling the whole. But here in context of Christ's work, we see that to add to Christ's work makes Christ of no effect, of no value at all. It's pointless then. Law and works are mutually exclusive in being made right with God in your justification. So Christ's death is really for nothing. So what is he getting at when he writes about being cut off from Christ? What does he mean here by he's cut off from Christ? This may be quite heavy for some here today to work through this, but to be cut off from Christ in this sense, is to have fallen away from the realm of grace. We've got to be careful with the language here. We've got to be very careful with this. Luther, I think, is very helpful in understanding this passage. Luther interpreted this expression to mean, you are no longer in the realm of grace. And he illustrates it quite graphically in his commentary on this verse. And I'll read it to you. Concerning the phrase, ye are fallen from grace. That is to say, Luther says, you are no longer in the kingdom of grace. For like as he that is in a ship, on which side soever he falleth into the sea, is drowned, even so he which is fallen away from the grace must needs perish. He therefore that will be justified by the law hath made shipwreck, and hath cast himself into the danger of eternal death. And what can be more mad and wicked than that a man should wish to retain the law of Moses? And thereby to lose the grace and favor of God, which if thou do, thou canst not but heap up to thyself wrath and all evils. Now if they fall from grace, which will be justified by the moral law, whither shall they fall, I pray you, which will be justified by their own traditions and vows, even in the bottom of hell. Again, that's from Martin Luther in his commentary. So, contrary to Arminian believers that interpret this text to be a forfeiture or a loss of salvation by a truly regenerate Christian or believer, Paul is writing to Christian churches, isn't he? He's writing to those that he believes are believers. And he's warning them about going back against their beliefs, okay? So he's writing to the Christian churches built on the doctrines of grace that he's saying, you once held to these, you're slipping right now, okay? So, of forsaking that sound doctrinal bedrock for a belief system that could only lead to a complete ruin of their life, that is what he's warning them of. 
So Paul is writing in harsh terms here to warn them against seeking to couple grace with the law, because it's not biblical, which would make Christ's death for nothing in their life. So again, if you think you can work your way to God's favor, then why would Jesus need to die? Essentially, it's blasphemous to think that you need to help Christ justify you before the Father. In verses 5 and 6, then, Paul begins to shift his argument here a bit from that strong warning of you're not walking in the realm of grace if you're believing these truths, and he shifts it. He begins to shift it a bit, and he's been giving dire warnings, bringing out consequences of going down this dangerous road of mixing law and grace. And in 5 and 6, Paul summarizes the essence of justification and the gospel working. We could translate verses 5 and 6 like this. For it is by faith that we who are true Christians are waiting in his spirit the righteousness for which we have placed our hope. By the spirit, through faith, are two of the major themes that have been through this book that are going to continue on here to unpack the rest of this book. So here Paul is seeking to help those who are being led away to quit looking to the law and instead to learn to walk in the spirit. That's going to be the rest of this chapter. Walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in faith like your father Abraham. This was already unpacked in 3, 1 through 5. And in 4, where we see Isaac, who is representing believers in Christ, being born of the Spirit. And with the theme of faith again, we recall here Abraham's story of justification in 2, 15 and 16. So here today, faith is the only thing that counts and expressing itself, but how? We've got to bring this out. What kind of faith? It's a faith through love, not through circumcision. It counts for nothing. And before we get too far, I also want to touch on the hope of righteousness. Why does he put that phrase here in the hope of righteousness in verse 5? Again, we have different aspects of salvation. I was saved, I was justified, it's all of grace, but also I am being saved, and one day I will what? I will finally be saved. Okay, so there's these aspects that he's beginning to touch on of your justification has implications for how you live now in your sanctification, and also with that hope that's set in Christ in the future. So there is a slight futuristic component that's brought out here We're a community of believers that knows where we're going because we are believers justified by Christ's finished work. So Paul was not saying that we have to wait until Christ's second coming to receive justification. Rather, the whole of burdens uh, of Paul's burden here of his teaching and instruction is to have a right understanding that divine righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ and is laid up for us in heaven. There's some verses I want to read that really resonate with this, and it's Romans 3, 25, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace is set for us. 
Romans 5.9 gives us this assurance. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's an implication for God passing over us. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, we start to see the connection of our justification and life and our sanctification. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice this next verse in verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So here again, back to our passage in Galatians 6.5, the phrase, the hope of righteousness, means this in context. The hope to which the justification of believers points them forward. Because of this, we have our next point. Those who are justified in Christ Jesus, in verse 6, Paul points us to what we are called to give ourselves to. It's a faith that acts and operates in a certain way, and it's in love. Remember the law of God? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourselves. This fulfills the law. 1 Corinthians 13, pretty important, right? This is the faith that justifies. It's marked by Faith in love. Now we are not justified by love. Notice this. Right? Don't twist the text. You're not justified by love. Rather, we are justified by faith, and it's a faith that produces love for God and love for others. It's a kind of faith. That is the saving faith. It's marked by love. It is a justifying faith that leads to love that turns into a life of holiness, and that's the trajectory of the rest of this book. We must be careful how we delineate that truth. So one commentator writes this to help explain this more detail. We must guard against the misunderstanding, especially in Catholic theology, that faith made perfect in love leads to justification. Right? Faith made perfect in love leads to justification. That's what Catholics taught. This is a serious distortion of the relationship between faith, love, and justification. And in speaking of justification, Paul never talks of faith and love. It's not a conjunction. It's not faith and love. But only faith as receiving and giving. Love is not therefore an additional prerequisite for receiving salvation. Rather, faith animates. It it shows itself in love, the love in which it works. Now, in verses 7 through 12, that's the next section of Paul's argument. We'll only be going down to verse 10 today. We see Paul contrasting either circumcision, works of law, with the cross, work of the Spirit. So this is sort of a transition here for the rest of the book. So after Paul sounded the call to freedom in verse 1, he turned to describe the dangers, as we've talked about, and the serious warnings. 
Okay? And the danger of the Judaizers' teachings, their demands for circumcision as an addition to the work of justification to Christ. And then he talks about faith, spirit, righteousness, hope, and love here. But before expounding on those themes in the rest of the book, he takes a minute here to remind the believers of their experiences together. He wants to come alongside them, bring them back from their straying. He's, he's kind of through this language here, putting his arm around the believers at Galatia, trying to bring them back into the fold. This is a personal parenthesis, so to speak. And it's going to come across kind of rambling, because he's, he's kind of in a transition here in the beginning of verse 5. So he uses a lot of literary devices, rhetorical questions, proverbial sayings, threats, irony, and a huge joke of sarcasm at the end. It's necessary and it's effective. So, in verse 7, Paul illustrates the Christian life by describing it as a race. He's now touching on their sanctification, what it looks like to be saved, what does it look like to have faith, true faith. He says this, you were running well. You were justified. You were living in light of that. Your life, you were being saved. You were, you were showing this out in your life. You were running well. And then he says, but who cut in on you in the race? Who tripped you up? Who knocked you down? Who gave you those bloody knees and that bloody nose and that broken arm? Who messed you up? Who hurt you? So who in the course of the race started cutting in and tripped you? So this is a rhetorical question. It's very similar to the other rhetorical question in a different way when he said, who bewitched you? Right? Who hexed you? Who cast a spell on you with a strange teaching that's tripped you up? So he's illustrating that this is the same person, the false teacher, that he begins to attack here. He then goes on to infer that the consequence of not running well and being bewitched was that they were not obeying the truth. Again, what is sanctification? It's living out of the gospel. It's living out your justification. It's the way you live out your faith. They were suffering in their sanctification. They were not doing very well in that, were they? They were justified, but their sanctification was being inhibited. It was being drastically threatened. So he's being very pastoral here to call that out, to address that, to ask why is that happening? Who's the one messing you up and why is he doing that? Why are you not obeying the truth? So again, this is the crux of sanctification here, and it's a word that we all love, obedience. Right? Don't you just love that word, obedience? I shared this concept and read these verses briefly with the, uh, with the teens in small group on Wednesday. Pastor Jeff uh, was teaching on the kingship of Christ from the book of Matthew took us through all those themes and the implications of what it is to have Christ as king. And so with the teens, we looked up uh, the lordship, the need for obedience as an evidence of working faith, of a living faith. And so we read these verses. Please turn with me to Romans 1.5, where we see that the faith that saves us results in something that comes from God, and it's defined a certain way. It's defined by obedience. Romans 1.5 writes this. I'll wait till you're all done flipping there. Romans 1.5. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith. Right? It's connected to that. It's a faith that's defined by obedience. And why? For the sake of his name among all the nations. It's for the glory of God that you are saved to what? By faith to a life of obedience. That is faith. It's obedience. So not only do we have love that results from faith, but obedience is, marks out the life of sanctification. He says, who has hindered you from obeying the truth? And then please turn with me to the end of the book of Romans. So the beginning of it, it's an obedience of faith. And at the end of Romans, Romans 16, 26 and 27. So these are sort of the bookends to the whole book here. The reason we're doing this is we're really centering on what Paul is writing here, how he defines faith. Because for so many, they love that I'm justified. Beginning of salvation. I'm justified all of God, all of work, all of his work. It's, it's none of my doing. But then what can happen passively in your thinking is I can just go do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I don't have to change. His blood's good to cover everything. We can become cavalier. But is that the faith that we're saved to? Romans 16, 26, and 27 writes this, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. What is the whole missional mandate? To bring about the obedience of faith. It's a faith that's marked out by obedience. The faith that justifies us results in a life of spirit-given obedience. We are not what's called antinomian, anti-law. But we are careful to hold the truth that faith alone justified, but justifying faith obeys and loves, and it produces something. So they were being told to be circumcised, and then they're good to go. It's their wooden nickel that's good for nothing but to get them into hell. But then they were not obeying the truth of the gospel, but were obeying the Judaizers. Similarly, there are many today walking around thinking because they got wet, whether as a baby or as an adult, right, that they're going to go to heaven because they got wet. There are many today, I'm talking about baptism there, by the way, if you're confused. When you're baptized, you get very wet. (laughs) So many think because they got baptized as a baby or as an adult that they're going to heaven. There are many who think because they went to some crusade and felt very emotional and walked an aisle and repeated some words and then were popishly pronounced saved that they're going to heaven. There are many who are resting in their own experiences and their own works rather than fully the work of Christ and the work of the gospel for salvation. There are many who are resting in what they done did. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I repeated these words after some guy, after feeling very emotional. But is there true faith in Christ's finished work that results in love and that results in a life marked out by faithful obedience to God and His truth? True faith according to what Scripture teaches. So who has hindered you from obeying the truth, church? 
What is hindering you from walking in obedience? What is tripping you up? What is cut in on your race, on your run, on your marathon, by the way? It's a marathon, the Christian life, isn't it? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that one day in heaven, they're going to, all Christians, they make it to heaven. Don't question assurance of salvation. If you're resting in Christ, it's finished, right? But there are many who are going to get to heaven one day, having run this race, and some run into the kingdom, some limp into the kingdom, some crawl into the kingdom, some of them very bloodied and bruised and beaten and tired. But they make it home because of Christ. But what is tripping you up today? For some of you, it may be that you really enjoy the, uh, the I don't know, the sparkliness of some toothy grin preachers on TV. Maybe you're just really, you know, enjoying that. Maybe you're prone to listening to those preachers, which are really no different than putting on some TED Talk for 20 minutes, making you feel really good about yourself, learning some neat psychological tidbit to make yourself a better businessman. But who is tripping you up? See, these Judaizers, they were banking on their rhetorical ability. They were banking on their personalities to get them by in the ministry, to trick and manipulate and flatter these people to get them to obey them rather than Christ. But how was Paul in his ministry? Was he beautiful and toothy and handsome? Was he manipulating them? Was he banking on his rhetoric? Paul was different. Paul did not seek to please men or require that men live in fear of him or pleasing him. His desire was that all live their lives in the gospel, respecting and fearing and loving God and others. These false teachers were demanding to be followed. He knew how to manipulate these people to feel like they had to please them. And false teachers are very good at guilt-tripping people to have to please them and follow them. Paul didn't do that. He put his arm around them. He was fatherly to them. They were a family. He didn't resort to rhetorical gimmickry or flattery or techniques of persuasion. Paul rested in the authority of God and the written word. When someone did turn to the gospel, Paul wanted to be sure that it was the working of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that persuaded them. He did not go beyond the gospel. He did not come short of the gospel. That is our desire here at Pine Grove. Among the pastoral staff, elders, deacons, all of us as a faith family, we desire to land squarely upon the gospel and that the gospel lands squarely on us. That God moves his truth through your hearts to love and serve him. And so Paul reminded these believers that such persuasion, the persuasion of the Judaizers, false teachers, is not from, notice the phrase here, the one who has called you. He pointed them back to the authority of God here. The one who had called them. So in verse 8, Paul was concerned with the Judaizers' manipulation. He desired to expose them. And in verse 9, Paul goes on to describe the result of their false teaching. He describes their false teaching by using a common proverb of the day. It takes only a little bit of yeast to make the whole batch rise, right? How many of you are making bread right now? It's fall. It's time for soup and bread, right? Making bread yet? 
Well, we have been, okay? Been enjoying that. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Another phrase that we use today is some of you are doing apples. Just one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Paul's point is clear here. This deviation of adding circumcision to the gospel, seemingly minor, has a drastic impact on bringing total ruin to all the Christian community. Wreaks havoc on the teaching of justification by faith alone. Little poison, if toxic enough, could shut the whole body down. So here Paul warns us today, as he warns every church of every age of history, that any community of faith that is unwilling to recognize and reject perversions of the gospel and fails to warn the sheep about these false gospels has no business bearing the name of a church or bearing the name of Christ. Rather, the way they must repent and hold fast to the truth and warn God's people, as Paul has, is of prime importance. Jesus purchased this body with his blood, and just as much as he sacrificed to die for it, we should sacrifice to protect her mission, her message, and everything that we teach. So Paul quoted the proverb here of Galatians 5.9 over in 1 Corinthians 5.6. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man in the congregation that was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he wrote them and he said, get him out, I've already judged him. Right? It's a no-brainer there. He's not repentant. He's flaunting his sin. Get him out. We've already judged him. Excommunication. So in both epistles here, Paul speaks to the dangers of being unguarded. Right? So one theologically, one practically. And the results are both calling for repentance, and if not repented of, uh, there's going to be excommunication. So his point is this. In a church where evil is winked at, where blind eyes exist, uh, there is to be a calling back to the gospel in getting this right of what justification is and what it produces. So many churches mistake justification by faith alone for being a pass for a free-for-all in sin. We know that is not the case. Faith produces love. It produces obedience. It's very, very simple. So that's all the time we have for today. Uh, We're going to come to the Lord's table now. And the application for the sermon really has implications at the table, like we had just talked about. So at this table is a visible sermon illustration of what it is to belong to God our Father. To Jesus Christ our Lord through faith and to the Holy Spirit who indwells us and sanctifies us to a life that follows his word, that obeys his word, learns to love God and his people. This table belongs to those who belong to Christ, who have been justified freely of God. And so as we're preparing our time together, I'm going to ask our men if they could go ahead and find their places at the various uh, with the various elements. Um, So I believe we have one in the back. We're going to need several up front here. I don't know if we need a deacon as well. And so this table belongs to all those who are in Christ, those who have been justified by faith alone. But there's implications for that as we've talked about today, right? There's implications about your life. This table is not for those who are trusting in their own works for salvation. This table is not for those who... Uh, they're, they're not trusting in a prayer that they once prayed. They're not trusting in an aisle that they walked. Being popishly pronounced saved by a priest or a pastor. This table is not for you if that's the case. This table is for all those who have simply put their faith and trust in Christ's finished work. 
They have repented of their sins. Repentance is there. Repent and believe. Okay? There's definitely repentance. There's a walking in newness of life. There's a life of love and a life pleasing to God, a life pleasing uh, to the saints. And so this table, I warn you, based on the authority of God's holy word, is not for those who are walking in the realm of sin. It's for those who are walking in the realm of God's kingdom, as we've talked about. It is not for those who are quietly making a mockery of sin, living one way, but another way, regularly you are someone else with no conviction. If that's the case, this table is not for you. Why do I say that? Well, it's not me that's saying it. God says it. The Bible says that those who eat and drink unworthily do eat and drink to their own damnation and destruction, and some, they die. They get sick, too. I plead for you who are not listening right now to pay close attention to what I'm saying. If you have yet to repent of living in immorality, living and sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, a life of fornication, fooling around before marriage, if you have yet to repent of pornography addiction or an addiction to alcohol, please come talk to us. We'll open God's word, put our arm around you, spend time with you, pastor you, shepherd you, love you. Okay, we we feel that empathy. That's God working on your heart and convicting you. Don't waste that. That's God's grace. If you're living a life where you're never wrong and always right, Everyone else is always the problem. If you can't help but tear everyone else down, be warned, repent. This table is not for you today. You cannot enjoy this table unless you're walking in faithful fellowship with him. At the same time, this table is for sinners who have become saints by grace alone. This table is for God's people who are walking in newness of life, walking in repentance, battling their sin daily. They're bloody, torn, beaten. You're tired. You're hungry today. Come to the table. Be strengthened in the gospel in Christ. This table is for you. This table is for the humble, not for the proud and arrogant. This is a humbling table. Because when you come to this table, you're so, I need Christ. I need his strength. I can't do this. I need Jesus. That's the picture here. This table is for those who just want even the crumbs that fall from the table. But he doesn't do that. He pulls up a chair for you, and he gives you a plate, and he gives you fullness of life in himself. This table represents the wideness of God's grace and his love and his goodness over you. This table is for all those who know that they're sinners. They're humbled by that. And they cry out for the strength of Jesus Christ. So if you'd please, uh, I will pray. When I'm finished praying, please line up in the aisles and come forward to receive your elements. When you have received the elements, please go back to your seat and wait. And we uh, we will walk through communion together. So let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this table. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that he calls sinners to come and die and to be made alive in him because of his life that he gave at the cross. So we thank you for the righteousness that he has given us through faith and repentance. We thank you for the fullness of life that Christ came to bring. I pray, Father, that we would come reverently to this table today, knowing who we're going to eat with, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gave himself for us. I pray, Father, that 
This table will also be guarded, that we will not be presumptuous and proud, but reverential and humble and respectful. Would those come forward today who are humble, who are chasing after Christ, who need to be strengthened in the gospel, and keep those, Father, from the table who are flaunting, who have yet to repent, who are not, who have not come to saving faith, maybe who are flaunting and living in sin and not repenting. So may we come carefully today, and we thank you again for the wideness of God's mercy shown here at this table. May all those who should come, come forward today. Be reminded of the gospel, of the broken body and the blood of Christ. And we give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.